0: Book One, Chapter Four, Sections One to Three, of Mr. Britling Sees It Through by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. CHAPTER THE FOURTH. Mr. Britling in Soliloquy. One. Very different from the painful contentment of the bruised and broken Mr. Durrick was the state of mind of his unwounded host. He, too, was sleepless, but sleepless without exaltation. The day had been too much for him altogether. His head, to borrow an admirable American expression, was busy. How busy it was! A whole chapter will be needed to describe. The impression Mr. Brittling had made upon Mr. Durick was one of indefatigable happiness. But there were times when Mr. Britling was called upon to pay for his general cheerful activity in lump sums of bitter sorrow. There were nights, and especially after seasons of exceptional excitement and nervous activity, when the reckoning would be presented, and Mr. Britling would welter prostrate and groaning under a stormy sky of unhappiness active, insatiable unhappiness, a beating with rods. The sorrows of the sanguine temperament are brief but furious. The world knows little of them. The world has no need to reckon with them. They cause no suicides and few crimes. They hurry past, smiting at their victim as they go. Nonetheless, they are misery. Mr. Britling, in these moods did not perhaps experience the grey and hopeless desolations of the melancholic, nor the red damnation of the choleric, but he saw a world that bristled with misfortune and error, with poisonous thorns and traps and swampy places and incurable blunderings. An almost insupportable remorse for being Mr. Britling would pursue him, justifying itself upon a hundred counts. AND FOR BEING SUCH A BRITTLING. WHY? HE REVIVED AGAIN THAT BITTER QUESTION OF A THOUSAND AND ONE UNHAPPY NIGHTS. WHY WAS HE SUCH A FOOL? SUCH A HASTY FOOL? WHY COULDN'T HE LOOK BEFORE HE LEAPT? WHY DID HE TAKE RISKS? WHY WAS HE ALWAYS SO READY TO ACT UPON THE SUPPOSITION THAT ALL WAS BOUND TO GO WELL? He might as well have asked why he had quick brown eyes. Why, for instance, hadn't he adhered to the resolution of the early morning? He had begun with an extremity of caution. It was a characteristic of these moods of Mr. Britling that they produced a physical restlessness. He kept on turning over and then turning over again, and sitting up and lying back, like a martyr on a gridiron. This was just the latest instance of a lifelong trouble. Will there ever be a sort of man whose thoughts are quick and his acts slow? Then indeed we shall have a formidable being. Mr. Britling's thoughts were quick and sanguine, and his actions even more eager than his thoughts. Already, while he was a young man, Mr. Britling had found his acts elbow their way through the hurry of his ideas, and precipitate humiliations. Long before his reasons were marshaled, his resolutions were formed. He had attempted a thousand remonstrances with himself. He had sought to remedy the defects in his own character by written inscriptions in his bedroom and memoranda inside his watch-case. "'Keep steady!' was one of them." keep the end in view, and go steadfastly, coherently, continuously. Only so can you go where you will. In distrusting all impulse, scrutinizing all imagination, he was persuaded lay his one prospect of escape from the surprise of countless miseries. Otherwise he danced among glass bombs and barbed wire." There had been a time when he could exhort himself to such fundamental change, and go through phases of the severest discipline. Always at last to be taken by surprise from some unexpected quarter. At last he had ceased to hope for any triumph so radical. He had been content to believe that in recent years age and a gathering habit of wisdom had somewhat slowed his leaping purpose, THAT IF HE HADN'T OVERCOME, HE HAD AT LEAST TO A CERTAIN EXTENT MINIMIZED IT. BUT THIS LAST FOLLY WAS SURELY THE WORST. TO CHARGE THROUGH THIS PATIENT WORLD WITH—how much did the car weigh?—a ton, certainly, and perhaps more—reckless of every risk—not only to himself, but others. AT THIS THOUGHT HE CLUTCHED THE STEERING-WHEEL AGAIN. Once more he saw the bent back of the endangered cyclist. Once more he felt rather than saw the seething approach of the motor-bicycle. And then through a long instant he drove helplessly at the wall. Hell, perhaps, is only one such incident indefinitely prolonged. Anything might have been there in front of him. And indeed now out of the dreamland to which he could not escape something had come something that screamed sharply good god he cried if i had hit a child i might have hit a child the hypothesis flashed into being with the thought tried to escape and was caught it was characteristic of mr britling's nocturnal imagination that he should individualize this child quite sharply as rather plain and slender, with reddish hair, staring eyes, and its ribs crushed in a vivid and dreadful manner, pinned against the wall, mixed up with some bricks, only to be extracted, oh, horribly. But this was not fair. He had hurt no child. He had merely pitched out Mr. Durick and broken his arm. It wasn't his merit that the child hadn't been there the child might have been there! Mere luck! He lay staring in despair, as an involuntary God might stare at many a thing in this amazing universe, staring at the little victim his imagination had called into being, only to destroy. Two. If he had not crushed a child, other people had. Such things happened. Vicariously, at any rate, he had crushed many children. Why are children ever crushed? And suddenly all the pain and destruction and remorse of all the accidents in the world descended upon Mr. Britling. No longer did he ask, Why am I such a fool? But why are we all such fools? He became man on the automobile of civilization, crushing his thousands daily in his headlong and yet aimless career. This was a trick of Mr. Britling's mind. It had this tendency to spread outwards from himself to generalized issues. Many minds are like that nowadays. He was not so completely individualized, as people are supposed to be individualized—in our law, in our stories, in our moral judgments. He had a vicarious factor. He could slip from concentrated reproaches to the liveliest remorse for himself as the automobilist in general, or for himself as England, or for himself as man. From remorse for smashing his guest and his automobile, he could pass by what was for him the most imperceptible of transitions, to remorse for every accident that has ever happened through the air of an automobilist since automobiles began. All that long succession of blunderers became Mr. Britling, Or, rather, Mr. Britling became all that vast succession of blunderers. These fluctuating lapses from individuation made Mr. Brittling a perplexity to many who judged only by the old personal standards. At times he seemed a monster of cantankerous self-righteousness, whom nobody could please or satisfy. But, indeed, when he was most pitiless about the faults of his race or nation, he was really reproaching himself. And when he seemed more egotistical and introspective and self-centered, he was really ransacking himself— for a clue to that same confusion of purposes that waste the hope and strength of humanity. And now, through the busy distresses of the night, it would have perplexed a watching angel to have drawn the line, and shown when Mr. Brittling was grieving for his own loss and humiliation, and when he was grieving for these common human weaknesses, of which he had so large a share. And this double refraction of his mind, by which a concentrated and individualized Britling did but represent a larger impersonal Britling beneath, carried with it a duplication of his conscience and sense of responsibility. To his personal conscience he was answerable for his private honor, and his debts, and the dower house he had made, and so on. But to his impersonal conscience. He was answerable for the whole world. The world, from the latter point of view, was his egg. He had a subconscious delusion that he had laid it. He had a subconscious suspicion that he had let it cool and that it was addled. He had an urgency to incubate it. The variety and interest of his talk was largely due to that persuasion. It was a perpetual attempt to spread his mental feathers over the task before him three after this much explanation it is possible to go on to the task which originally brought mr Durick to matching Easy, the task that massachusetts society had set him upon the task of organizing the mental unveiling of mr britling mr Durick saw mr britling only in the daylight and with an increasing distraction of the attention towards Miss Cecily Corner. We may see him rather more clearly in the darkness, without any distraction except his own. Now, the smashing of Gladys was not the only source of a series of reproaches and remorses directly arising out of the smash. It had also a wide system of collateral consequences, which were also banging and blundering their way through the britling mind it was extraordinarily inconvenient in quite another direction that the automobile should be destroyed it upset certain plans of mr britling's in a direction growing right out from all the dower house world in which mr durrick supposed him to be completely set and rooted there were certain matters from which Mr. Britling had been averting his mind most strenuously throughout the weekend. Now there was no averting his mind any more. Mr. Britling was entangled in a love affair. It was, to be exact and disregarding minor affinities, his eighth love affair. And the new automobile, so soon as he could drive it efficiently, was to have played quite a solvent and conclusive part in certain entangled complications of this relationship. A man of lively imagination and quick impulses naturally has love affairs as he drives himself through life, just as he naturally has accidents if he drives an automobile. And the peculiar relations that existed between Mr. Britling and Mrs. Britling tended inevitably to make these love affairs troublesome undignified and futile especially when they were viewed from the point of view of insomnia mr brittling's first marriage had been a passionately happy one his second was by comparison a marriage in neutral tint there is much to be said for that extreme catholic theory which would make marriage not merely lifelong but eternal Certainly Mr. Britling would have been a finer, if not a happier creature, if his sentimental existence could have died with his first wife, or continued only in his love for their son. He had married in the glow of youth, he had had two years of clean and simple loving, helping, quarreling, and the happy ending of quarrels. Something went out of him into all that, which could not be renewed again in his first extremity of grief he knew that perfectly well and then afterwards he forgot it while there is life there is imagination which makes and forgets and goes on he met edith under circumstances that did not in any way recall his lost mary he met her as people say socially mary on the other hand had been a girl at noonham well, he was a fellow of Pembroke. And there had been something of accident and something of furtiveness in their lucky discovery of each other. There had been a flush in it. There was dash in it. But Edith he saw, and chose, and had to woo. There was no rushing together. There was solicitation and assent. Edith was a Bachelor of Science of London University, and several things like that and she looked upon the universe under her broad forehead and broad waving brown hair with quiet watchful eyes that had nothing whatever to hide a thing so incredible to mr britling that he had loved and married her very largely for the serenity of her mystery and for a time after their marriage he sailed over those brown depths plumbing furiously of course, he did not make his former passion for Mary at all clear to her. Indeed, while he was winning Edith, it was by no means clear to himself. He was making a new emotional drama, and consciously and subconsciously he dismissed a hundred reminiscences that sought to invade the new experience, and which would have been out of key with it. And without any deliberate intention to that effect, he created an atmosphere between himself and Edith in which any discussion of Mary was reduced to a minimum, and in which Hugh was accepted rather than explained. He contrived to believe that she understood all sorts of unsayable things. He invented miracles of quite uncongenial mute mutuality. It was over the chessboard that they first began to discover their extensive difficulties of sympathy. Mr. Brittling's play was characterized by his superficial brilliance, much generosity, and extreme unsoundness. He always moved directly his opponent had done so, and then reflected on the situation. His reflection was commonly much wiser than his moves. Mrs. Brittling was, as it were, a natural antagonist to her husband, she was as calm as he was irritable. She was never in a hurry to move, and never disposed to make a concession. Quietly, steadfastly, by caution and deliberation, without splendour, without air, she had beaten him at chess, until it led to such dreadful fits of anger that he had to renounce the game altogether. After every such occasion, he would be at great pains to explain that he had merely been angry with himself. Nevertheless he felt, and would not let himself think, while she concluded from incidental heated phrases, that that was not the complete truth about the outbreak. Slowly they got through the concealments of that specious explanation. Temperamentally they were incompatible. They were profoundly incompatible. In all things she was defensive. She never came out. Never once had she surprised him halfway upon the road to her. He had to go all the way to her, and knock and ring, and then she answered faithfully. She never surprised him even by unkindness. If he had a cut finger she would bind it up very skillfully and healingly, but unless he told her she never discovered he had a cut finger. He was amazed she did not know of it before it happened. He piped, and she did not dance. That became the formula of his grievance. For several unhappy years she thwarted him and disappointed him, while he filled her with dumb, inexplicable distresses. He had been at first so gay in activity, and then he was shattered. Fragments of him were still as gay and attractive as ever, but between were outbreaks of anger, of hostility, of something very like malignity. Only very slowly did they realize the truth of their relationship, and admit to themselves that the fine bud of love between them had failed to flower. And only after long years were they able to delimit boundaries where they had imagined union, and to become allies. If it had been reasonably possible for them to part without mutual injury and recrimination, they would have done so. But two children presently held them, and gradually they had to work out the broad mutual toleration of their later relations. If there was no love and delight between them, there was a real habitual affection, and much mutual help. She was proud of his steady progress to distinction, proud of each intimation of respect he won. She admired and respected his work. She recognized that he had some magic, of liveliness and unexpectedness, that was precious and enviable. So far as she could help him she did. And even when he knew that there was nothing behind it, that it was indeed little more than an imaginative inertness. He could still admire and respect her steady dignity and her consistent honorableness. Her practical capacity was for him a matter of continual self-congratulation. He marked the bright order of her household, her flowering borders, the prosperous high-born roses of her garden with a wondering appreciation. He had never been able to keep anything in order he relied more and more upon her. He showed his respect for her by a scrupulous attention to her dignity, and his confidence by a franker and franker emotional neglect. Because she expressed so little, he succeeded in supposing she felt little, and since nothing had come out of the brown depths of her eyes, he saw fit at last to suppose no plumb-line would ever find anything there he pursued his interests. He reached out to this and that. He travelled. She made it a matter of conscience to let him go unhampered. She felt, she thought, unrecorded. He did, and he expressed, and re-expressed, and over-expressed, and started this and that with quick irrepressible activity. And so there had accumulated about them the various items of the life to whose more ostensible accidents mr durrock was now for an indefinite period joined it was in the nature of mr britling to incur things it was in the nature of mrs britling to establish them mr britling had taken the dower house on impulse and she had made it a delightful home he had discovered the disorderly delights of mixed sunday hockey one weekend at Ponting's that had promised to be dull, and she had made it an institution. He had come to her with his orphan boy, and a memory of a passionate first loss, that sometimes, and more particularly at first, he seemed to have forgotten altogether, and at other times was only too evidently lamenting with every fibre of his being. She had taken the utmost care, of the relics of her duskily pretty predecessor that she found in unexpected abundance in mr britling's possession and she had done her duty by her sometimes rather incomprehensible stepson she never allowed herself to examine the state of her heart towards this youngster it is possible that she did not perceive the necessity for any such examination so she went through life outwardly serene and dignified, one of a great company of rather fastidious, rather unenterprising women, who have turned for their happiness to secondary things, to those fair inanimate things of household and garden which do not turn again and rend one, to aestheticisms and delicacies, to order and seemliness. Moreover, she found great satisfaction in the health and welfare, the growth and animation, of her own two little boys. And no one knew, and perhaps even she had contrived to forget, the phases of astonishment and disillusionment, of doubt and bitterness and secret tears, that spread out through the years, in which she had slowly realized that the strange, fitful, animated man, who had come to her, vowing himself hers, asking for her so urgently and persuasively, was ceasing, had ceased, to love her, that his heart had escaped her, that she had missed it. She never dreamt that she had heard it, and that after its first urgent, tumultuous, incomprehensible search for her, it had hidden itself bitterly away. End of Book 1, Chapter 4, Sections 1 to 3